And we are continuing a series that we've been doing called You Ask For It. We have taken questions that you have given us, and we are seeking to answer those questions biblically. And the question that we're going to be looking into this morning is a tough one. Judging versus addressing sin. When am I guilty of judging, and when am I just talking about God's boundaries that he has expressed in his word? And that's a tough call if we go at it just from our gut. What we really need to do is draw from Scripture principles about how we apply talking about sin but not being judgmental as we do so. Now, one of the most oft-quoted verses in the New Testament is guess what? Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. And it's often misapplied. There was a man in a previous church who decided while going to the health club, watching a former girlfriend from high school in her aerobics exercise outfit, that he had missed God's will and that he shouldn't have married his wife and their two then college-age kids and then another kindergarten-age kid that came later as a surprise. He missed God's will and needed to leave his wife and go establish a relationship with this woman that he had left unrequited, I guess, in love from high school. And... This man was chairman of the elder board, a Sunday school teacher where he was teaching a class on marriage principles, and was actually the chairman of the search committee that brought me on staff. So a leader in the church, but one who was not applying the word of God, and those of us who loved him with broken hearts went to him. And we talked to him about what he was doing. I had his two kids in my college group. I was the college pastor in that church. And they were reeling from what took place. Their hearts were broken. And so we go and we talk to him, I and a couple of other leaders in the church. And guess what the first words out of his mouth were? Judge not that you be not judged. Now, what's going on there? How do we understand what judging is and then what approaching someone about an obvious sin is? And, and, and where does one leave off and the other one start? That's what we want to look into this morning. So I thought that as our first leg of this journey through looking at the difference between judging and addressing sin, the first leg should be the meaning of judging. What what does it mean in Scripture when it talks about judging? What do we mean when we say that judging is not a good thing? And it begins with this. We are guilty of judging when we measure right and wrong based on ideas and feelings. When we look at our culture... The idea of something being right for all people all the time or wrong for all people all the time, that's foreign thinking. 
It is something that is in flux and constantly changing. It's kind of fluid and liquid, these standards of morality, these standards of right and wrong. And as a matter of fact, the concept that the creator, that God has established morality, things that are right, things that are wrong, and has revealed those truths to us is further strained in their thinking. They don't agree with that. They can't see it. As a matter of fact, standards of morality seem intrusive. Why would God care whether or not we do these things? And so they resent the concept of the creator establishing morality, right and wrong, and communicating those standards to us. As a, re- as a, a result, they reject anyone who addresses the concept of right and wrong, and they in turn consider that them setting themselves up as judge. What we find, though, is this concept has even crept into the church. Many churches no longer look to God's word as a standard for what's right or what's wrong. As a matter of fact, when something is clearly stated in the scripture, their response very often is, I will disregard what the scripture says in this matter because it can't mean what it's saying. It doesn't fit into my grid of thought. So therefore, I reject it. But then there's another side to the coin. There are also those in churches who, based on a feeling or an idea, will arbitrarily make something right or wrong and put it on par with what God has said, making it equal to what God has revealed about what's right and what's wrong. So it's very confusing Confusing when we look at these things, we, we, we find that so often people committed to this way of thinking really are constantly judging others by looking and saying what you're doing is wrong, but they don't want any standard held to them where they themselves are put under the microscope. We should never measure someone else by an arbitrary standard that we come up with. We need to look to God's word to find that measuring stick. And that, I think, is the first point that we need to consider when it comes to the meaning of judging. The Apostle Paul said this to the Colossians. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? Now, do you catch what he's saying? There were rule makers in the first century of the church, and they were coming in and they were arbitrarily making rules about what people could and couldn't do. And they were all based on human precepts and teachings. Not what God had revealed, but on what they had come up with. And then Paul further states this. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made rules, apart from what God has revealed in Scripture 
are going to lead to more confusion than light. They do not advance people in their walk with God. And they don't even help us to stop from sinning. That's the message that Paul gives us, and that's why it is wrong for us to arbitrarily make standards and say, these are the standards of God, but they're ones that we've made up in our own heads rather than what God has said. And here's what's really subtle. There are those who will claim that God's word says something, and they will take the scripture and they will distort it and twist it to make it fit a preconceived notion that they have, and they will shoehorn something that they think into scripture and cause people to follow what they say rather than what God said. So this is a part of being judgmental, and it's a part that we all need to avoid. But there's something else. The meaning of judgment is also making an assessment of a person's motives. How many of you have ever had somebody assign a wrong motive to you? And you, it was the furthest thing from your mind. You weren't thinking about what that person accused you of, even remotely, and yet it's leveled. Listen, being judgmental is not only making up our own rules and saying they're on par with God, but being judgmental can also mean that we are ascribing certain motives to people that we can't see. You know what I've noticed in my time on planet Earth? The people that I have looked at and assumed that they were of the purest motives, lo and behold, at some point, what do you discover? Wow, they were rotten to the core. And I never saw that coming. And then some of the people that I look at and I think, oh man, their motives are not good at all. They turn out to be the trustworthy ones. See, there's a problem for us as human beings. I can't see into another person's heart. I can't see what's going on inside them. And God's word points this out to us. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance on his height or stature, because I have rejected him. For Now, this is the part I want us to really key in on. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I can't see into another person's heart, into their spirit, into their soul. And when I become judgmental, very often I'm trying to do that very thing. But here's the interesting thing about reading motives. When I seek to read motives in another person, I'm going to read bad motives into the people that I don't like. I'm going to immediately assume that someone that I have a problem with is there to do wrong. Because of that prejudice, bias, I will never read good motives into them. So even my own thought processes can be something that drives me toward being judgmental. And as a follower of God, that is something that I shouldn't do. I shouldn't be judgmental in that way. Something else about judgmentalism. We're judging when we try to manipulate others through legalistic intimidation. Let me share this with you. There are some churches and some Christians who weaponize the word of God. 
And what I mean by that is this. They take scripture and they twist it so that they can intimidate people into behaving in a way that they want to. And the person that you go and seek permission from, the person that you go and seek approval from, holds all the cards. And so as a result, they have power over you when you have to go and ask them permission to do anything. This leads to very judgmental behavior. There are many Christians who don't understand the liberty that they have in Christ, the joy of a walk with God. They see faith as something that puts the boot on the neck of the individual and forces them to live in a way that is really enslavement to a particular leader or a particular system. That's judgmentalism. Now I know from your stories, some of you have spent some time in churches where grace was just something that was talked about on occasion, but the idea of crushing you under a load of rules that were man-made rules brought you to a place of discouragement and frustration and hurt. This is what judgmentalism does. It takes us to the place of being under the thumb of a powerful leader so that they can force their will on us. So all of this carries with it the idea of judging. We are making up the rules as we go along. We are judging the motives of other people, and we do so in order to manipulate them into behaving in the way that we want them to behave. That's what judgmentalism does. But when we really look at this scripture, we have to look at the mindset of judging. Why do we want to judge? And the first point I think we have to look at is judgmentalism is really motivated by selfishness. It's, it's all about me. You know, we all have fallen natures, we all struggle with sin, and there's a part of me that likes to compare myself to other people. So when I'm being judgmental, guess what I like to do? I like to find the faults in other people so that in my own mind, I feel better about myself. If I can look at other people and say, yeah, you know, I, I sin, I have a problem in this area, but whoa, look at these people. You know, they really have a problem. I can feel better about myself. Really, a me-oriented approach to my relationship with God and my relationship with others is destructive. It's devastating. The judging that I do so that I can look better, never just stays with me either. What do we usually do when we've discovered a fault in somebody else that we judge to be terrible? Hey, did you hear about so-and-so over here and what they're doing? I'd never do that. We need to pray for them, right? We gossip. First we judge, then we gossip. 
Why? What is the motivation? What in us responds to being able to take something that we've learned and share it with other people? And I would submit to you that it's all about me. I can look important as I share something that I've discovered. I can look authoritative as I talk about the sin in other people. And as a result, I fall into sin myself by becoming a malicious gossip. When we have this mindset of judging that leads us to do this, we are breaching the word of God. In fact, James, in chapter 3 and 4, talks about the selfishness of those who don't control their tongues. And in the fourth chapter, he says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Those who speak evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge. And by the way, you could put in parentheses, and you're not it. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, the implication of this passage, when we look at it, is there is a motivation that is built up in us this motivation fueled by sin that seeks to elevate myself, that seeks to gain leverage over other people. And I will use judgmentalism, and I will use gossip, and I will use whatever tools might be in my arsenal to advance my purpose and my agenda. And God does not want us to behave that way. Unfortunately, many people have the view of Christianity to where that's who we are and what we do. And some of that we've earned. But this is not what God would have us do. We are not to take what God says and use it as a weapon against other people. And we aren't to twist what God has said and make it fit an agenda that we have in mind. My Awareness and my talking about sin needs to be more about God and less about me. If I start looking at other people, comparing myself, and saying, oh, I'd never do that. I'm not capable of such behavior. Then I need to check my motives. And I need to ask myself, do I have a me problem? Or I'm elevating myself by disparaging other people. God doesn't want us to live like that. Something else. We mistakenly usurp God's role as judge. Now, James touched on that when he said there is just one lawgiver. But Paul develops it a little bit more in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul said this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another It is before his own master that he stands and falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, here's, I think, an important point that we need to grasp. Listen, when I take God's word and I apply God's word to a situation that is not judging, for instance, 
Someone tells a lie. And it's an obvious lie. They're caught in telling a lie. Okay? I'm not judging if I said, you know, you told a lie. I am agreeing with what God has said in his word, and I am applying his word to a specific situation. Okay? Now, here's the problem. If I start reading motives into it, if I start talking about what constitutes a lie, if I start adding all of these regulations on top of what God has said in order to further refine it, then I have drifted into judgmentalism. I need to be careful when I talk to people about sin and I need to make sure that I am not usurping God's role as judge. One of the ways that we usurp God's role as judge is by this. Suppose somebody has done something that is wrong and it's clear and they admit it and we look at it and we say, yes, they've done it. When I start talking about how they should be punished by God, then I have usurped the position of judge. Have you ever done that? Somebody does something wrong, and man, they deserve you know, usually the wrath of God, right? And what we do is we look at ourselves and we say, well, you know, I think God should give me mercy. But we look at someone else and we say, God really needs to do justice to that person. We judge them by their worst act while we want to be judged by our best intentions. And as a result, we become usurpers of God's authority. That is a part of judgmentalism. One other thought about judgmentalism, the mindset of it. Malice rather than love in interacting with others is a thought process of the judgmental. Have you ever noticed that people you like you cut them breaks. They do something wrong. I'm sure they didn't mean it. But somebody that you don't like, mm-mm, I knew it. I knew they were going to do that. I'm trying not to point in any direction because I love you all. But, <laughs> you know, when, when you look at it and you say, I knew they did, I knew they would do this, they are awful people, you know, you, you allow this malice and hatred to well up inside of you and you direct accusations and thoughts against another person driven by hatred and malice, not driven by love. The scripture tells us that love covers a multitude of sins, but what we find when I have a problem with another person is I'm going to immediately jump to the worst conclusion, and that's judgmentalism, and we need to avoid it. When we look at other people and we immediately assume that they've done wrong, we've done wrong. Now, this doesn't just apply to the church. Listen, I've seen this in counseling with husbands and wives and family members. I've had husbands and wives come into my office and talk about situations in their life. And I'm going to just be real open with you. I've sat there and thought, this is what you're complaining about? I mean, I've seen other marriages where this seems rather minor compared to what I've seen people go through. Why in the world are you making a mountain out of the molehill? No, I don't say that because I'd like to see them back again. But I've thought it on occasion. 
we can become angry with somebody and we can start building an account against them and it can fester and grow and build and as a result, even when they do something right, it has become wrong in our minds, in our thought processes because we're guilty of malice and judgmentalism. Don't jump to conclusions about people that you have problems with. It leads to being judgmental. And husbands and wives, if you find yourself constantly looking at the other person and the things that you once found endearing are now just so annoying, you want to knock them in the head. Or if you are jumping to conclusions about that other person and immediately assuming that what they're doing is awful, then you need to check where you are in this whole judgmental spectrum and abandon it. Last point I'd like us to think about. We misunderstand judging. Now, number one, there's a misapplication of Scripture. When we read the Scripture this morning, we read from Matthew chapter 7, and very simply, it's Jesus addressing the group and saying, judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? Now, the overall application of this is very clear. I shouldn't overemphasize the sin of others while underemphasizing my own sin. That, that's part of what Jesus is saying. But I think we also have to think about who this is addressed to. So it was addressed to a religious system that had risen up in Israel where the Pharisees had taken charge over the people of Israel. And they were constantly laying a load on other people of standards that they came up with. The law contains 632 requirements. That wasn't enough for the Pharisees. They had to add more and more and more regulations on top of the 632. And they judged people by those standards that they applied. And what Jesus is saying to the group is this. Look, you may notice a minor infraction in somebody else, but my goodness, your hatred toward other people and your oppression of other people, that stands out far more than the offense that you're calling into account. Jesus intensified this in Matthew chapter 23. And in Matthew 23, Look at the words that Jesus has for this spiritual hierarchy, leadership, that had taken hold during his day. He said the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they're in a place of giving the law. Okay? So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Or they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's 
just a glimpse. When you get time, go home and read Matthew chapter 23. But what Jesus was speaking to in that day was that practice. Now understand, as I said earlier, when I see a given situation and God's word speaks about that given situation, it is right for me to talk about it, to call sin, sin. Listen, if we get squeamish about talking about sin, then the rest of the world will not have an awareness of sin And if they have no awareness of sin, they will have no awareness of their need for Jesus Christ. So as God's church, we have to have a voice that addresses sin. We can't ignore it. We can't refuse to talk about it. We can't redefine it so that sin is no longer sin. We have to speak to it. We have to address it. The problem comes in when I add to or take away from God's word, which the Pharisees were doing in Matthew chapter 7. And when I do that, then I am guilty of judging. The problem is, I can't even live up to the standard that I impose on other people. I'm going to fail. So that's why Jesus spoke about the sin of the Pharisees in doing this. Number two, boy, I I really went crazy on the old clicker that time. Here we go. The message to confess sin and repent from sin isn't judging. The scripture is crystal clear that there are times where in love I need to approach another believer about their sin. As a matter of fact, Paul states this to the Galatians, brothers, If anyone is caught in a transgression, that's another word for sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, what is it saying? Number one, there is someone who is entrapped by a sin, and I become aware of it. What am I to do? Well, number one, I go privately. Let me emphasize that. I go privately. I don't pull my small group around me and say, you know, so-and-so is guilty of sin. I haven't talked to them about this yet, but let's pray that they quit doing this. No. Privately, I go to that person, and I am led by the Spirit of God. When Paul talks about you who are spiritual, he's piggybacking on the fifth chapter of Galatians that talks about those who walk in the Spirit, those who are dependent on the Spirit of God and who are motivated by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's the Spirit in which I go and talk to the other person. And what is my goal? To restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's not condemning. I'm not to go to another person and say, oh, you have messed up. You rotten, wicked individual. That's not what I'm to do. As a matter of fact, the word that is translated restore in our English Bibles is actually a medical term that meant to set a bone. If somebody had a broken arm, you don't go up and twist it around and say, well, let's see what position it looks best in. You take it and you set it firmly but gently, trying to impose as little pain as possible. We are to restore them, look at this, in a spirit of gentleness. 
Nobody likes to be approached by a holier-than-thou individual. At times, as a pastor, I have actually heard out of the mouths of some Christians as they're talking about the sin in other Christians, these words, why can't everyone live for Christ as well as I do? My jaw drops every time I hear it. But that's an attitude that is not biblical. (laughs) I'm to go in a spirit of gentleness with the understanding, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, but for the grace of God there go I. That's the idea. And if I come in a condemning fashion, and if I come bullying the other person, I will not restore. God wants us to be people who restore other people. And the reason is brought out by James. James says this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Listen, when we start that spiral away from God, if there isn't somebody there to help us get back on track with God, we can spiral into many more sins. One of the purposes of the church is that we are a place that holds one another accountable. If you read right at the beginning of our Constitution's doctrinal statement, it talks about a covenant that we enter into as a church body where we are seeking to lead holy lives and we want to hold one another accountable as far as the way we live. But in holding one another accountable, it's not in an accusatory fashion. It's to be done in love, approaching the other person and saying, man, I don't want to see you spiral away from God. I love you. I care about you. Listen, if you are going to the other person that you're going to talk about something with, with a, I can't wait to tell them off, wrong attitude. I don't know about you, but when I go and my palms are sweaty and I feel like there is a golf ball lodged right in my throat, and this is the last thing I want to do, but I know what's what I have to do, then I'm probably going with the right attitude. That's the way God wants us to approach sin in one another. Final thought. Motivating people to live holy lives isn't judging. Listen, part of what we are to do as a church is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And what we need to remember is what God's word says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what God has called us to do. We're to motivate one another to lead holy lives. And as a church, we need to take that seriously. We need to live this truth. That's what God would have us do. But I certainly shouldn't compare my holiness against another person's holiness. I shouldn't look and say, I'm so serious about my relationship with God and they're not. 
Because when I do that, I'm going to not be able to win them over and stimulate them to love and good deeds. I think the way we need to look at this is this. We're all in this walk with God together. And there are going to be different people at different places in their journey that I'm going to encounter in the church body. And rather than being critical, rather than being condemning, rather than looking at another person and comparing myself against them, I need to pray for them. When led of God, I need to go and talk to them privately in a loving and caring way and offer to help them through their journey. That is the approach, not a judgmental, negative approach. As Christians, we need to talk about sin. God does. The prophets of old talked about sin. But in talking about sin, pull me out of the equation. That's what I need to do. And show concern and love for the individual and show grace to the individual. Be a channel through which the grace of God flows into the lives of other people. That's to be our goal as followers of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And Lord, all of us can fall into the trap of being judgmental. All of us can come to the place to where we look at other people and we find fault. Not because we are concerned about them, but because we are seeking to elevate ourselves. God, let us be people who show grace, concern, love, and appreciation for those around us. Let us be those who stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.